breaking the fourth wall. You ever heard of that phrase before? Breaking the fourth wall, usually you use that phrase when you're talking about a story or talking about movies. Um, there's a, a, a one movie in the 80s that made this phrase really f- famous because this movie did this thing. They broke the fourth wall. Is when a person in a, a story comes out of the narrative and, and instead of just interacting with the characters in the story, they talk directly to the audience. And so you have this character in, in, a, in a movie called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And so the character Ferris Bueller breaks the fourth wall. It's a, it's a movie about this kid skipping school and the hijinks he gets into. And, you know, the movie goes through this story, gets to the end. The credits start rolling. And then you get to the end of the credits. And you have basically the camera positioned facing this way. And Ferris Bueller, he starts to walk out and he gets out of the shower and he has the towel around him. And he walks out and then he looks over right in the direction of the camera, which looks like he's looking at you, the audience. And looks at you and, and says, what are you still doing here? Movie's over. Go home. And it's funny. It's humorous because he's, he's saying a joke and he's talking directly to the audience, but it catches your attention that he does that because it's not typical to do that in a story. When you go to the book of Genesis, and especially Genesis chapter 2, you have what is, a, in a sense, a breaking of the fourth wall. Because in Genesis 2, you have in verse 18, God declaring it's, it's not good that the man should be alone. We make a suitable helper for him. Verse 21, he begins that process where he puts Adam into this deep sleep, takes one of his ribs, creates woman from that rib, gives Adam this suitable helper, and then... In verses 24 and 25, the last two verses, it breaks the fourth wall. Talks directly to us, the audience reading. Because the whole book of Genesis is set up as a narrative. It's set up as a storytelling model. A true story of a real God and real people and real events. But it's a story starting in Genesis, how God creates the world. How man falls from that paradise that God makes. And then following the generations after, after of Noah and of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But there's one time in the entire book, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2, breaks the fourth wall, says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and the two become one flesh. Breaks the fourth wall there to take the application from these verses in chapter 2 because it is something of great value. It's something of great importance so much that the writer says, let me stop telling the story for a moment and tell you what you should take away from these verses. And that coming together, that oneness of the husband and wife is of a great instruction for us. And certainly it's going to imply the physical intimacy, the, the physical relationship between the husband and wife, but it implies so much more Because in Matthew 19, when Jesus quotes this, when Jesus references these verses at the end of Genesis, he's talking about the marriage relationship as a whole. He quotes those verses and then he says, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. Let no man divorce and separate these two people. Because God has brought them together. He has cleaved them together, created a oneness, created a fusion of a husband and wife. That's a word you'll hear me use a lot Throughout the rest of this lesson, this idea of two people fusing together in a oneness, in a relationship, in a bond together. 
And that oneness, that fusion between a husband and wife, it's a good thing. It's a blessing. It's a benefit. But what happens when two people become so bonded, so fused together, that it's unhealthy? They have such a strong bond, but there's no boundaries in that bond. And that relationship becomes so vital, so important to them. Maybe it supersedes all other relationships, even their relationship with God. And maybe you ask, well, what would that look like? What would I imagine that as? Well, you don't have to go very far from Genesis 2. You just go right over to Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, you see Adam and Eve's relationship become too bonded, become too fused together. As Eve is tempted by the serpent, she is given the fruit, she eats of the fruit, brings that fruit to Adam, says, Adam, I want you to eat this with me. And Adam has a choice there. He has a choice, yes, about whether he eats the fruit, yes, about whether he gains that knowledge, but he has a choice about relationships. A choice about whether he's going to put his relationship with his wife first or his relationship with his God first. And Adam could have said, no, Eve, I can't eat that because God has instructed us not to. No, Eve, I cannot eat that with you just to support you, just to encourage you. No, Eve, I cannot eat that because my relationship with God is more important than my relationship with you. I've got to set up that boundary. He could have said that, but he didn't. And thus you have the consequences that unfold from there. This idea of of a relationship between two people, two people being too fused together. A bond without boundaries is going to be the focus of this lesson today. And we're going to ask it within a specific framework here, but I I believe it will apply broader than this framework. But we're going to ask the question, for parents, am I too fused with my children? Am I too fused with my children? Now, if if you're not married here or you're, you're not a parent, you don't have kids... I don't want you to look at that and say, well, then this lesson's not for me. It's just for people who are raising children. Well, no. Consider this just a case study. Consider this just an example of what it looks like when I bond too much with another person where it supersedes my bond with God, where it supersedes my relationship with God. We're going to focus on this case study, this question, am I too fused with my children? Now, as I think about, as I thought about this lesson, prepared for it, there was just one family in the Bible that really stuck out to me, that came to my mind. And that was Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. Probably the most obvious example. I want you to look over at Genesis 25 with me as we read some of these verses about this family. Genesis 25, beginning in verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. And after his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You, know, you see the, the seeds of, of tension here, of being overly bonded, already planted, just in the first introduction to not only Isaac and Rebekah's 
becoming parents, but also their relationship with their children now. Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. They've already picked their favorites here. They already picked the people they're going to bond with the most, the children that they're going to fuse together with the most, with no boundaries. And then the consequences play out as the story goes along. If you go over to Genesis 27, just a few chapters, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and he said to him, My son. And he answered and he said, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out in the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat and that my soul may bless you before I die. Esau, I want to give you some blessings, but we're going to do sort of this ceremoniously. I want you to go prepare me this meal, hunt this animal, process the food, bring me this meal, and then I will give you the blessing before I go, before I pass on from this life. And in chapter 25, it says this is one of the reasons why Isaac loved Esau. Because he loved the food that he would go out and hunt and prepare for him. He was a skillful hunter. And in many ways, you see a lot of connection between Isaac and Esau and their similar passions. Isaac loves food. We can say the same thing about Esau, can't we? He sells his birthright for a bowl of food. Isaac can look at Esau and say, we have a lot in common. And so he sets this up. He says, Isaac, or Esau, I want you to go out and, and, and hunt and prepare this food for me. But as Rebecca overhears this and she sees what's happening, she does not like that. She wants her favorite child, her favorite son, to get the blessing. So she comes up with this scheme. She says, Jacob, here's what I want you to do. I want you to dress yourself up in, in Esau's type of clothes. I want you to put some animal hair over you to pretend like you, this is your real hair and that you're hairy like Esau. And then I want you to go in front of your father, pretend like you've hunted and pretend that like you've made this meal for him so that you get the blessing and not your brother. Verse number 18 of Genesis 27. So he went to his father and he said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. And Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice. The hands, they're the hands of Esau. And, when, and he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you truly my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and brought him wine and he drank. So it's successful. The ruse is successful. Jacob goes in there, and, and Isaac knows something is, is a little bit off in this interaction. Didn't we just have this conversation like a few hours ago? How did you already go out, hunt the animal, kill the animal, 
butcher the animal, process the food, process the meat, cook the meat, and prepare the meal with any other sides and already have something presented towards me. How did you do that so quickly? God granted me success. You believe in God, don't you, Father? Can't he do that? Isn't he great enough and and on my side that he could do that? And Isaac backs off and says, well, yeah, that's true. But then he hears the voice and he says, well, something's a little bit off too. But by the end of it, Isaac's basically just concluding, well, maybe my senses are so dulled because I'm older. Because my ears don't work as well. My eyes don't work as well. Maybe this is just my own mind tricking me. Because it feels like Esau. So he does give him the blessing. The ruse is successful, and then the story goes on from there. And this is just a, a brief picture, a brief synopsis of this family. But now if we, we, we take a step back from this story, go back to the original question. We ask, am I too fused with my children? And ask, what does that look like? Here's three things, at least three things, three signs that I might be too fused with my children. Number one, I might be too fused with my children if I pick a favorite child. I might be too fused with my children if I pick a favorite child. Because that's where the whole problem starts, isn't it? When you go to Genesis 25, Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. They picked their favorite children. And throughout the course of their life and the course of their parenting, it showed that they had their favorites. In fact, you, you look at Esau and Jacob, and they are so different. Fraternal twins, but personality-wise, they're completely different people. It says about Esau, he was a man who was a skillful hunter, a hairy person. Loved the passion of the food, just like his father Isaac. But it's almost set up like Esau is this child who is rugged, who is strong. He's the child, if he had two sons, here's one son that's really good at sports, that's very sociable, that's very popular. And then you've got the Jacob son. It says he's just quiet, he dwells in tents. One son who's, who's involved in everything and playing sports and is rugged, and then you got the other son, he just keeps to himself, not as socially dynamic, and then he just he keeps his nose in the book. But very smart, very intelligent, two very different personalities. You almost see Isaac and Rebecca picking the child that they have the most in common with. Isaac sees so much of himself in Esau, and Rebecca sees so much of herself in Jacob, and thus they pick their favorites, and they're too fused with their children because of that. Not bonded enough, certainly with God, or even in their marriage, and so that's reflecting on themselves as parents. That said, I know every single parent in here today can sympathize with this because I'm sure every parent here at one point or another, if you have children that are the age that they can talk and you have multiple children, at some point one of them's accused you of having a favorite. And people are starting to look around. Some point, you, as a parent, you've been accused of having a favorite or even if you have, um, if you're a sibling, you got brothers and sisters. At some point, you've had a brother, you've said, pointed to another brother or sister and said, you're the favorite child. And if you've never been pointed to and, and pointed to another person and said, you're the favorite child, it's probably you then. <laughs> They're probably looking at you and saying, you're the favorite. You need to listen to this lesson because this is the problem that's going on. 
I've done it myself. I'm going to be totally honest. My older brother, I always tell my mom, he is the favorite baby of the family. And she says, no, I love my children. I love, I love all of you, and you're all special to me. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. And of course, I, I'm joking, and I know she does love us, and I think it shows in her parenting and her relationship with us. And I assume that the same is true for all of us as well, for the most part, that we do love our children, even if those accusations get thrown around. But as a precaution, I would say let's not assume that because we're Christian parents and trying to follow God and trying to follow his word, that this could never be a temptation for us, that this is never something we could fall prey to. Because you're going to look at your children, and if you have multiple children, you're going to sometimes see qualities about yourself more in one child than the other child. If you put all four of my siblings up here, you put myself next to my older brother, you would look at us, and before we said anything, you would say, wow, John looks just like his brother. They look like twins. And then we start talking, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> Those are two very different people. And the same is true with my, my sisters. Well, I have distinct personalities, and there's qualities about us each of us that is more like our mom and each of us that may be more like our, our dad. You can look at your child amongst multiple children and you'll see more of yourself in one child than in another. And your, your spouse will see more of themselves in one child than in another. Not always that black and white. But let's not assume that it's always just a joke. Let's not assume that just because we are Christian parents, that that is never a temptation we could fall prey to, to give more attention, more focus, more love towards one child than another. I might be too fused with my children if I pick a favorite. Number two, I might be too fused with my children if I communicate with my child, but not my spouse. Or you could even word it as, if I communicate more with my child than I do with my spouse. Because sometimes that's true. Sometimes we are communicating with the person we're married to, but not more than we are with our child. It's just interesting that throughout all these several chapters about this family, don't really ever read about Isaac and Rebecca talking about this, discussing the elephant in the room, the fact that they've picked their favorites, and acknowledging that that's a problem and that's affecting not only their marriage, but it's affecting the kids. Now, maybe they did, and just for argument's sake, maybe they, maybe they did, and the Bible just doesn't record that for us, just doesn't tell us about it. Maybe they talked about it a lot, and the, the, the writer just didn't reveal that or, or record that in writing. But the, the verses here, what we're given, that's never, you're given, never given any sense of Isaac and Rebecca as a married couple discussing their parenting and their flaws in parenting with one another. Instead, they're communicating a whole lot more with their favorite child. When two people who are married and that bond is so strong because of their love for one another, when there is disagreement, when there is dissension, that can be also just as strong. And you start to part ways and you start to to separate emotionally and you stop communicating as much with one another as a husband and wife, but you still need to get some of that stress and that frustration out. You still need somebody to talk to who you're going to lean on. There's your child right there. The child that loves you, 
the child that's willing to do whatever they can to support you because they care about you as their mom or dad. And then you bring all of that adult stress and that adult anxiety and that adult worry, and then you put it on the shoulders of this little human that's really not ready to handle those adult problems. You can really mess up a child by doing that. And I'm, I'm not sure how much you share, as, as a parent, I'm not sure how much you share with your children about your, your marital problems and your stress and your frustrations. I, I don't know. Maybe you don't share anything. Maybe you talk a little bit about it. Maybe you, when you have arguments in front of your kids, maybe you think it's healthy to do something about it. And when you resolve it, go and say, tell the kids, hey, here's what's happened and here's how we resolve the issue so they know mom and dad are still on the same side. I don't think that's a bad thing. But when the communication is shutting down so much that I'm really just not talking to my spouse, who I'm supposed to be bonded with in the Lord, to the wife I'm supposed to love, to the husband I'm supposed to care about, when, when that shuts down and you bring all that adult, those adult problems to your child, put it on their shoulder, that might be a sign you're too fused with your children. And at least one more of them. I might be too fused with my children if I'm picking favorites, I'm communicating with my child more than my spouse. Number three, I might be too fused with my children if I team up with my child against my spouse. If I create these teams in my family where rather than saying we're all on the same team or mom and dad were on the same team, I say mom and daughter are on the same team. Father and son, they're on the same team, but everybody else, we're against each other. That's a sign I'm probably too fused with my children. And that's really what Rebecca does in chapter 27. And I'm not saying she's the villain of the story. She's not the only problem. Isaac has his issues as well. But it doesn't seem like it's Jacob's idea to create this ruse to trick their father. It's not Jacob coming up with the idea, let me put hair over my body so that when he touches me, he thinks it's Esau. It's not Jacob coming with the idea and saying, well, he can't see well, and he can't hear well, and he's very vulnerable, and he's very susceptible. We can do this. It's Rebecca. And she teams up with Jacob against Isaac, her husband, and Esau, her other son, and Jacob's brother. And you, you hear that, and you see that, well, this is an extreme scenario. This is a unique type of family with unique problems. That doesn't really happen in a a family today. It doesn't happen with families in the church or even that that commonly outside of the church. Do you ever, any of you grow up in a family going through divorce? Any Any of you ever seen a family going through that? Or even, honestly speaking, have any of you ever gone through that yourselves? Because that happens. And I'm not saying it happens all the time. I'm not saying it happens most of the time. But I do think there are plenty of families that in this extreme scenario where the the husband and wife just give up and they want a divorce, you still want to feel justified. You still want to feel like you're right, even though that relationship is breaking up. And you want somebody to validate your feelings. Even if it's not a family going through a divorce, if mom and dad are at an impasse and they're just arguing and at each other's throats and the communication shuts down, but you really feel like you're right and you really want somebody to validate your feelings, there's that child of yours sitting there that, again, 
loves you and is willing to tell you anything you want to make you feel better because they love you. And the child is told that the dissolving of the relationship and the problems in the family, it's the other parent's fault. It's mom's fault. It's dad's fault. That you should love me more than that other parent. And then they go with the other parent and they say the same thing. And you put the child in a position where they have to choose. Who do you love more? Who do you care about more? I need you to pick. You're either on my team or the the other spouse's team. That's a sign. You're probably too fused with your children. You've probably got a bond without boundaries because that's what relationships look like when God's not first, when God's not priority, and when his commands about how the family is supposed to function is not a priority. Because if it was... You wouldn't see a relationship with Isaac and Rebecca not talking to each other. You wouldn't see a relationship with them not communicating, them not loving each other. You see them on the same team. Not simply picking their favorites, but being appropriately fused together, knowing God is above them, holding them accountable about how they function in their relationships. Probably four, five, six years ago, I don't remember how long, I was in a, the internship program with the Roanoke Church of Christ, and I was teaching a Bible class. It was about leadership, and uh, that I didn't plan it for, for the class to go in this direction, but it's a class about leadership, and through, through question and answering, it went to a discussion about elders, then it went to a discussion about the qualification of elders, and then it went to a discussion about Um, the specific qualification of an elder being a good leader in his home, raising uh, faithful and godly kids. And so the question became in that class, how how do you raise a faithful child, a godly child? And here I am. Been married about two years. Wayne, you're smiling because you know where this is going. I'm married two years. I don't have kids yet. I'm in my early 20s, and I'm talking to an audience full of people who are parents, who are grandparents, who have kids, who have teenagers, who have all the experience in the world, and here you got this guy standing up here telling you how to raise your kids. Didn't go over so well, let me be honest. There was one elder, in fact, he raised his hand, and he said, John, young man, you know more about raising kids now than you ever will after you have kids. And that terrified me because I I didn't say this out loud, but I thought, I don't know that much about raising kids now. You telling me the bar's going to drop even lower? (laughs) I'm no expert on child rearing. I'm not. I hope you don't come across uh, from this lesson thinking that. I'm no expert on how you should or shouldn't raise your child, but... I think I can make this statement that I'm about to make and it not be something that people are going to challenge me on. That even if you're a parent or grandparents here, you're probably not going to question me on this because I believe it is something that is simple and is biblical. Every child would be better off with a mom and dad who have a healthy biblical relationship. Every child would be better off with a mom and dad who communicate. Every child will be better off with a mom and dad who didn't pick their favorites, 
but loved each child uniquely and even had unique relationships, but still showed love and support for each child. Every, every kid would be better off with a mom and dad who didn't make teams to divide up the family, but to say we're all one team. Mom and dad, we're a team. Son and daughter, we're a team together. We're not against each other. Every child will be better off with a mom and dad who say God is first, before, even before the spouse, even before the child. Because when you go to passages in the New Testament, like Ephesians 6, where it says, Fathers, raise your kids in your nurture and admonition of the Lord. Before that, in chapter 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. You go to Colossians, where it says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. In the same context, he says, Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. God never saw the raising and rearing of children and the maintaining of the marriage relationship as two completely separate things. They, they go hand in hand. And what happens is when I don't put God first in my relationships and his commands first in my relationships, it causes me to distance from the wrong people and be overly bonded with the wrong people. Because the only bond without bounds that I should have is my bond with God and nobody else. This is final scripture and final point, and then we'll stand and sing. We'll offer the invitation. Matthew 10, verses 34 and 35. In that passage there, Jesus says, He who loves father and mother more than me, it's not worthy of me. You love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. Now, God's not saying you need to love your spouse less. Or he's not saying you need to love your son less, your lovely daughter less. He says you need to love me more because when we do, not only does that keep us, keep us in Christ, not only are we saved spiritually, but it's also going to make all the rest of our relationships so much healthier. Let's focus on being fused with God, having a bond without, bounds, uh, without boundaries with God as opposed to any other relationship we have. Again, a case study. I want you to ask this question, and then we'll stand and sing. Because if you're not in a relationship with God, you haven't been putting God first anyways. You haven't been baptized into Christ. You haven't repented of your sins. That's where you need to start. But even for us that already are in a relationship, ask this question. Am I too fused with fill in the blank? And if somebody comes to your mind that immediately goes into that slot, and then you ask that question with the person in the slot, and the answer is yes. This lesson might be for you. Let's stand and sing and offer the invitation.